welcome everybody to Hollywood Haunted, the podcast, where we bring you stories from former tour guides of Hollywood Haunted Tours, stories about the paranormal, true crime, UFOs, ghosts, um, I don't know, murder, things that go bump in the night, uh, Hollywood history, horror movies, exorcisms, and uh, whatnot. Uh, tonight is part two of the Black Dahlia story, yes. continuing from yesterday. And tonight's podcasters are me, Tia Bean, along with Teresa. Yay! Over here, and we're doing two uh, separate parts of the Black Dahlia story. Um, I'm gonna go first if that's okay with you. Uh, I'm gonna talk about kind of the legacy of the Black Dahlia. So sort of kind of what happened after the fact. Um, So if you are just tuning in and you didn't hear the last episode and you're not familiar with the Black Dahlia case, it is a true crime that happened in Hollywood in the 1940s it is one of the most brutal shocking disturbing uh and unfortunately it is an unsolved crime as well so i'm just gonna read a little bit about the crime and then i'll get into my cool information here so at 10 30 a.m on january january 15th 1947 A woman named Betty Bersinger was walking in Lamar Park, Los Angeles. Uh, She discovered a body in a vacant lot. She thought it was a mannequin, and she was walking with her child in the stroller when she saw this mannequin lying in a vacant lot. Uh, Because the mannequin was cut or was in two separate pieces, or the body was in two separate pieces. She thought it was a mannequin. So when she approached it, uh, she was horrified to discover that it was actually a body of a female. And so uh, she runs to a nearby home. She calls the police. They come out. They investigate the crime. They find that the body is surgically cut in half, uh, mutilated, One of the most distinct features of the body is that she has a cut along her sides of her cheeks. Uh, And it is sensationalized. It's in the news for 16 weeks. And the press call this woman and they later discover uh, that this Jane Doe was uh, a woman named Elizabeth Short. And they later... uh, name her, give her this nickname of the Black Dahlia. And in our last podcast, they kind of went into why she had that name. Generally, it is believed more or less that it was because she often wore black. She had flowers in her hair. It was kind of a nickname that she had in her life before uh, her tragic death or murder. Um, and there was tons of people who came out of the woodwork to confess. Most of them were prank or pranksters. Nothing really came of it. However, there was one person of interest, a gentleman named George Hodel, that, um, 
he pretty much, it was obvious that he did it. In our last podcast, we did talk a lot about all the evidence against him. His own son, Steve Hodel, uh, wrote several books, The Black Dahlia Avenger, Most Evil, Black Dahlia Avenger 2, 3, and 4, on and on, <laughs> uh, with all of the um, evidence that he collected against his own father, possibly being the Black Dahlia murderer. Uh, George Hodel, this gentleman who uh, they think it was, was a surgeon, uh, pretty eccentric, creepy guy. He did uh, at one point go to trial for because uh, his own daughter accused him of uh, molesting her and raping her. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of evidence against him, but it boiled down to basically her word against his, and, you know, he was very powerful, and unfortunately, um, you know, he was never charged with this crime. And, you know, his reputation in L.A. was kind of tarnished because of this, but he left for a while. He came back to California. He really didn't see a lot of consequences. And, um, you know, his daughter, her name uh, was Tamar. And um, after this case, Tamar uh, got pregnant. Uh, not from her grandfather, but from another gentleman. Uh, she went over to a friend's house, and unfortunately a friend of that friend raped her at the house, and uh, she ended up having a baby, and uh, George Hodel and her family forced uh, her to give this baby away, and that is kind of where my story begins. And I'm going to talk about what happened to Tamar's baby? So, you ready? I'm gonna just get into it. Ready. All right, <laughs> so most of my information came from a book called One Day She'll Darken. It's this one right here, One Day She'll Darken. Mm -hmm. um, it is actually written by uh, Fauna Hodel. The full title is One Day She'll Darken, The Mysterious Beginnings of Fauna Hodel. Uh, Fauna Hodel is this baby. You know, spoiler. It was written with, along with J.R. Brimonte. So this is her memoir. And uh, yeah, so let's get into it. Um, I also got some information from a podcast TNT put together called Root of Evil. This podcast was put together by Fauna's two daughters. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end, though. So, uh, all right. My story begins in, and this is a true story. This all definitely did happen. This is, uh, from the perspective of Fauna, I do think she maybe embellished a few things, uh, here and there, but this is from her point of view, um, and unfortunately, I don't have a lot of dates. I usually have many more dates uh, for the for my podcast. So uh, most of the story happens between the time she was born and the time she is around 19 years old. So pretty much her growing up. 
Um, so, uh, in September of 1951 in Reno, Nevada, a woman named Jimmy Lee Greenwad, she, uh, she is a black woman and a bathroom attendant, uh, working in the Riverside Casino and Hotel. Uh, she is, uh, working during one of her shifts. Um, now, okay, let me describe Jimmy first before... I get too far into this. Jimmy is very attractive, but uh, she is also a gossip. She is always used to being the center of attention. She will make herself the center of attention. She is a tornado of a person. She is very jealous. She has a lot of drama following her around all the time that she stirs up and costs. So, uh, she is uh, definitely a character. And at the time, she is dating uh, the shoeshiner of the casino, the Riverside Casino. Uh, he's also a minister. His name is Chris Greenwad. Now, uh, she got with Chris by can, uh, kind of flirting with him. She would show up to his church in a fancy dress, you know, over the top. She does like to dress over the top quite a bit uh, and convince Chris to leave his wife. Uh, and they never were officially married, even though she did go around with his last name of Greenwad. Um, she always wanted to be an actress and a singer. She brings that up quite a lot uh, throughout her life, uh, saying that that was something that she wanted to be. So anyways, Jimmy is working in uh, the bathroom. She's a bathroom attendant at the Riverside Casino and Hotel on her shift when one day a woman wearing a red blouse with a pin of the letter L comes into the bathroom. She approaches Jimmy and introduces herself as Louise. She says that she is a hairdresser. Uh, Jimmy has seen this woman before. Um, at the casino, one time particularly when Jimmy had brought her young niece to the casino, uh, she was kind of babysitting while she was working and let her niece hang around in the bathroom area. So Louise has seen her with uh, a child before. Mm -hmm. Louise starts to talk to Jimmy and tells her that one of her uh, clients, one of her clients named Dorothy, uh, has a daughter that got herself pregnant. She says, somehow she managed to get herself pregnant. She's only 15. It is impossible for her to care for a baby. She's just a child herself. And my dear friend, Dorothy, uh, I feel so sorry for her. She's done everything possible to raise the child the right way, but somehow it all seems so hopeless. Why, she practically begged me to see if there's anything I could do to help. The worst part of this unwanted pregnancy is that the father is a colored boy. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being colored. So she goes on to talk to Jimmy and ask, asks Jimmy a lot of personal questions. And Jimmy tells her that she's married to the minister, Chris Greenwood, and that even though they've uh, tried to have children, they don't have any. And Louise offers Jimmy $50 and suggests that she adopts this baby. And Jimmy thinks this lady is crazy and drunk 
she wants that $50, so she kind of half agrees and yeah, 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 you know, and dismisses this lady. She kind of, she brushes it off. She does tell Chris about it and he's like, that's absurd that this happened. Um, but they kind of forget that the whole thing happened um, until a few, a few weeks later, Jimmy receives a telegram. Sorry, uh, about two months later on a hot afternoon in August, a frail looking boy in a green uniform comes to the restroom where Jimmy is working and gives Jimmy a telegram. The telegram is addressed to Jimmy Lee Greenwald at the Riverside Hotel, care of Ladies Lounge, Reno, Nevada. All the telegram says is, baby girl, arrive today, stop. Please come to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, San Francisco, stop. Louise. So she ignores the telegram, um, but then about three weeks later, that same woman, Louise, or so she calls herself, uh, returns to Reno and confronts Jimmy in the restroom. Uh, she says, didn't you get my telegram? That poor baby is sitting in a crib in San Francisco waiting for you to come and pick her up. I thought you were a decent, God-fearing woman. You told me your husband was a man of the cloth. Now you just get the little baby, or now you just let the little baby lie there without anyone taking care of her. What kind of person are you? So. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, From behind the class. What the hell? Yeah. What kind of person are you to leave this Jesus. baby? Like, she. And she's all, yeah, are you serious? That's like, crazy. Insanity. How, how dare you? Insanity. I left this... that baby days ago. And you're supposed to be thinking, yeah. You're supposed fuck? to take this baby. Uh, you know, so, uh, so Jimmy is like, uh oh, I'm in trouble. Like, okay, so this is, you know, segregated America, the 1950s and 60s, racial tension. So, if this white woman makes a fuss in this casino, Jimmy could lose her job. Jimmy could be arrested. You know, who knows what's going to happen. So, like, her hands are kind of tied at this point. And the woman is starting to cause a scene. And so Louise, or whoever she is, says, we need to go talk to Chris. Where's, where's your husband? You know? So they go and they find Chris at his shoeshine station in the casino. Uh... And Chris, all of a sudden, is, like, thinking this is a great idea to take this baby. Uh, <laughs> he says it's a blessing from God. Uh, he likes the idea of having a kid to show off. And uh, he also, secretly, in my opinion, I think he wants the baby to keep Jimmy occupied. Mm. Uh, so Chris promises Louise that they will leave for San Francisco the next morning. They drive to San Francisco the next day, and Jimmy gets drunk the whole way over. Uh, she's kind of a closeted alcoholic at this point. Uh, Chris does not approve, but every time they stop at a gas station, Jimmy is sneaking alcohol by going to the restroom, and she puts uh, alcohol in a 7-Up bottle. And so by the time she gets to San Francisco, she's pretty... Uh, pretty toasted, yeah. you know, pretty sloshy. Uh, 
Uh, you, do it. No. you know, and like, <laughs> can you blame her? This Jamie. is insane. <laughs> yeah. This is absolutely insane. Yeah. I would feel like I was in the twilight zone because everyone seems to think that this is normal and it's an okay idea. And she's mm-hmm. like, oh, it's yeah, <laughs> she has to go along with it. Um, so they drive to San Francisco, uh, and they meet, uh, at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, they meet with a Sister Teresa, and they are, are presented with a very white-looking baby girl. <laughs> the baby girl's name is Fauna Hodel. But the birth certificate says Father Negro. So, you know, everyone, Jimmy is still in the Twilight Zone. She is like, this is a white baby. <laughs> And, I can't and take her this. dad's name is Negro. Yeah. <laughs> like that, unknown. Like, unknown. Like, like what? How do they? How, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. That's all it said. Like, Jimmy thinks this no is crazy. Name. But, okay. So, anyways. So, you know, they have to go to an attorney. His name is Cyrus Waters, who is handling the case. Uh, so... They go the next day, but that night, Chris uses Bible verses to convince Jimmy into taking the baby and quitting her job at the casino. So, basically guilt her into it. Mm-hmm. And they go to Cyrus Water's office. Cyrus Water is a very racist man. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. Uh, and has them sign the papers uh, for a trial period of one year with the baby before they go through with the legal adoption. Uh, they are not allowed to change Fauna's name. And he alludes to the fact that she will inherit a lot of money. Uh, and then they take home this very pale looking newborn baby girl. Uh, Chris and Jimmy very quickly end up in a toxic relationship, toxic situation. Chris is never home. And leaves Jimmy with the baby, the baby she didn't really want to begin with. He goes around his congregation bragging about this child, how God gave him this child. And he really is using this baby to make himself look good. But he's not home taking care of this kid. Jimmy is. And he's out counseling the woman of the congregation. And Jimmy is an extremely jealous person. Uh, and then Chris leaves Jimmy with this baby. He just up and leaves. He was the one who told her to get this baby and he just leaves. Mm. They were never legally married, so there's no divorce. Mm. Uh, however, the adoption is under the name of Chris and Jimmy Greenwood. This is not Jimmy's real name. And so they're not legally married. The adoption is never legally completed. So now Jimmy is stuck with this baby that she doesn't even have the proper documentation to have this baby. Mm. So she has to basically hide Fauna, you know, and hide the fact that she's Fauna's mother. And it's very confusing for this little girl growing up, you know, in public. She can't say that this is my mom, you know, because people would be like go crazy and maybe even take her away and who knows what would happen. Mm. Um, so, uh, 
Jimmy calls Fauna. Oh, okay. So Jimmy decides that she is going to change Fauna's name. Not legally. She just starts calling her Patricia because she thinks that's more of a, a Negro sounding name. Like Fauna's not a black child's name in her opinion, at least. Um, but it's kind of an underhanded thing because it, she gets the idea from the term white patty which is a derogatory term for a white woman. Uh, so baby Patricia grows up and she, she has a very difficult life being a white child in a Negro neighborhood with the name Patricia, the nickname white Patty, obviously these kids are very cruel to her. Uh, she, it's in the 60s, so, you know, there's a lot of negativity between, you know, the white community and the black community, and she's very lost, you know. Uh, her mother is a single mother who is also an alcoholic, you know. Uh, she, she remains pretty optimistic, though. Patty, Fauna Patty, grows up as best as she could under the circumstances. She is always very positive. Although Jimmy is an alcoholic and kind of a mess and very toxic, you know, will go off, you know, at the drop of a match. She actually does take pretty good care of Fauna. She's always well-fed. She's always well-dressed. She's very proud of this beautiful little girl that she has. Um, and for a while, they live with Jimmy's mother, uh, who in the book is called Big Mama. And she is the most loving maternal figure that uh, Patty ever uh, has. Also, Jimmy's uh, newer husband, Homer, is very... Uh, affectionate to baby Patricia Fauna. So she does have a lot of love in her life, even though it's a very confusing time. Um, Homer and Big Mama shower Jimmy, a uh, shower Fauna with unconditional love. And even after her grandmother's death, um, Big Mama's spirit still guides uh, Patty Fauna in her dreams she visits her very often and is kind of this guardian angel throughout mm -hmm. this whole story um so now being in a broken household she seeks love where she can get it and unfortunately she gets pregnant at the age of 15. she gives birth to her daughter yvette and marries uh, a black gentleman named bobby ward so she gets a job as a file clerk at St. Mary's Hospital in Reno. And out of a sort of, um, so she starts telling everybody um, this story of her life. And she's been very honest about it. Um, anytime people are, you know, claim that she's not, mixed it's kind of a thing where they're like you're you're not black oh i am i'm mixed race it says so on my birth certificate is a thing that she says all the time mm -hmm. to people it's 
kind of just comes out second nature. So it says so on my birth certificate. Um, so she starts telling all of the nuns and other nurses and other people working uh, at the hospital about her story. And she's not ashamed, you know. It's part of her being proud of her background, but also she kind of hopes that maybe someone might know something down the line. If she talks about it, puts it out there, maybe she'll get a clue somewhere. Someone has to know something. Mm -hmm. Uh, so then, uh, this nun shows up who takes interest in her story. And I absolutely love this nun. She is definitely a kindred spirit. She's, <laughs> uh, she's definitely a murderino, uh, yeah. true crime enthusiast. Yeah. So sister Hillary, this nun, sister Hillary approaches Fauna one day and she says, so you're the young lady who has a daughter and a husband, two mothers and a mysterious past. And Fauna says, yes, sister, but I only know one mother. I'm sister Hillary, the nun said, and you're Fauna. Yes, you know a lot about me, Fauna said. Oh no, I know very little, just the rumors about you uh, were given away to a colored maid in a restroom? Is that true? Uh-huh. And what other rumors do you have to tell? You must tell me more. None. Yeah, I love her so much. Nuns are the worst. She said, <laughs> she says, you must tell me more. I love a good story. And Sister Hillary said as she pulled up a chair and sat next to Fauna, where do I begin, Fauna said. And she proceeded to relay her saga to the inquisitive nun. She ended with a plea for help in searching for her real mother. I understand your frustrations, said Sister Hil Hillary sympathetically, but there isn't much I can help you with. Fauna's shoulders drooped, at least not officially. Oh, what can you do? Well, I'm not sure other than offer encouragement right now, but we must keep this very quiet. The nun said as she lifted two fingers and then twisted them at her lips, pretending it was a key, which she tossed in the air and smiled. The other sisters will not approve of my meddling, so we'll need to communicate surreptitiously. <laughs> what does that mean? Fauna asked. Stealthily, on the QT, Fauna's eyes glazed over. Undercover, said Sister Hillary. Oh, I get it, like James Bond. Said, Fauna said, yes, like James Bond. When I find something out, I'll use the code name Lucy, but don't expect much. Who's Lucy? Sister Hillary stood up and shuffled towards the door. She turned and whispered to Fauna, peanuts, then disappeared into the hallway. <laughs> I love that. She's just like <laughs> on the QT. Uh, yeah, this, yeah, this nun. Uh, so, you know, someone wants to help, which is exciting, you know, uh, at this point in the story. So in the meantime, Fauna contacts social services to see if they have any information, but she just receives a pretty useless letter um, uh, on October 31st of 1969. It says, Dear Fauna, Dr. Torkelson has referred your letter to me requesting information regarding your mother. Fauna, I would not say your mother gave you away, 
Your mother was a very unsophisticated girl who would not have been able to care for you because she was immature and was dependent on her mother financially. Her mother did not believe she was capable of rearing a child. Your grandmother did make all the arrangements for the adoption, of course, with your mother agreeing. It was a private adoption. Therefore, they were not consulted and had no part whatever in the placement. We do not know the whereabouts of your mother. In fact, her parents have heard nothing from her since she left them after you were placed with your adoptive parents. God love you and keep you. Sincerely, Sister Anne, ACSW, Director of Social Services. So, lots of opinion there, but it's just so frustrating because, like, you know something. You just don't want to tell me because you don't think I should know. Mm -hmm. And that's not fair. Right. You know, so, you know, minimal, just a roadblock so far, though. So, then... The nun comes back and Sister Hillary tells Fauna that she will be going to San Francisco soon and will snoop around St. Elizabeth's where Fauna was born and see what she can find. So on the nun's return, Fauna gets a note from her and it says, I found something interesting. Things, you know, uh, I found some interesting things. You know where to meet me at three o'clock near OR, Lucy. <laughs> uh, Sister Hillary had gotten a hold of Fauna's records uh, so she finds out that her family is very wealthy they left San Francisco they moved to Los Angeles but it doesn't say where uh, the only thing useful was an old address on Fillmore Street where her grandmother was living at the time so she doesn't uh, yeah um, so yeah, she gets a couple addresses, um, of her grandmother, you know, starting to get some information, but that's pretty much it at the time. Uh, so with some information, she gets the idea to just check the phone book of Los Angeles, uh, well on the phone with her friend Luann, who happens to live in Los Angeles. And Luann checks the phone book on her lunch break, and the next day she gets the number for a Marion Hodel. So she calls him. He's confused. He claims he knows nothing and hangs up. But a week later, she receives a letter from Marion. And the letter is on May 29th, 1970. She calls him and she writes him a letter um, at some point. He says, uh, Fauna, I am so very happy and glad that you followed up your phone call with a letter because as it happens, you did contact the right Hodel, even though he told her it, he knew nothing before. Your grandfather is my cousin and is now living in the Orient. However, I don't have his address, but we'll secure... Uh, will secure uh, same from his son who is living in Los Angeles, Steve Hodel. Your grandfather's son contacted me about four months ago trying to trace some family history. I hadn't seen him since he was about five or six years old and your grandfather had him, had him at that time. This is over 30 years ago. 
As soon as I can get in touch with Steve and get your grandfather's address, I will send it on to you. And he might also have some information on your grandmother. This is a short note, but wanted to get it mailed at once, as I know this will be of interest to you. Sincerely, M.E. Hodel. P.S. Your mother would be a half-sister to Steve. So, Steve Hodel wrote The Black Dahlia Avenger. Mm -hmm. uh, he is the son of George Hodel. Mm -hmm. Unknown to Fauna, and not in this book, is, is the fact that at the time he was already starting to suspect George Hodel of being the Black Dahlia murderer. So he was snooping around to find information. So that's what that was about. You know, but he's not letting anybody in the family know. He's just trying to, oh, I just need some information on my family. I just want to know her lineage, this and that. Mm -hmm. um, but Steve's also a detective. So he knows how to do it, you know, mm -hmm. where he's not going to be found out. Mm -hmm. She gets another letter a little bit later. This is on uh, June 5th, 1970. Dear Fauna, again, a brief note to let you know that I received your second letter and I'm still trying to get uh, your grandfather's address in the Orient. I have been able to contact Steve. I haven't been able to contact Steve for the last week or so. As soon as I do, uh, as soon as I do, we'll forward the information on to you. And at that time, I hope that I will be able to have found out more information from Steve. As I said before, I know how anxious you are, and that is why I'm writing these short notes so you will realize that I am working on this for you and not just forgetting the whole thing. Sincerely, Marion. So it's a little frustrating. She's almost getting information, but not quite. So a month later, however, she receives a phone call. And the phone call goes like this. Fauna Hodel? Yeah, that's me. This is Dr. George Hodel. I am your grandfather. In your letter, there were many questions all directed towards, towards one purpose. Why do you want to get in touch with Tamar, your mother? So Fauna was stunned, you know, as she says, Dr. Hodel, if my trying to find Tamar puts her in danger or interrupts her lifestyle in any way, Please don't tell her. Just send me a picture so that I can lay down to rest this obsession that I have. And he laughs and says, I can assure you that it will not endanger her lifestyle. She is in Hawaii. You mentioned in your letter that you were married and had a daughter. Yeah, her name is Yvette. Let me ask you something. Is your husband Negro? Is he Negro? Sure he is. I'm part Negro myself. Of Black family raised me in a black community. Why wouldn't I marry a Negro? Yes, of course. I will let Tamar know that I spoke uh, spoke with you and she'll be in touch with you. I would love to meet you the next time I'm on the West Coast. I'll make sure that I make time to meet with you. Uh, and then he says, Fauna, this is very important. Under no circumstances are you ever to call or get a hold of Marion Hodel, ever. I'll explain it to you when I see you in LA. All right then, you know, <laughs> but yeah, you'll see. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, uh, so George never meets up with her in LA. And so at one point 
Jimmy Lee to get sick, uh, and out of nowhere, an anonymous benefactor pays for her hospital bills, and she is given the best treatment. So strange things like this start to happen now more and more after she's had this one contact with George Hodel. So about a year after George's phone call, Bana is having no success finding Tamar until she realized she must live in Hawaii. Now, Fauna's maybe only like 16, 17 years old at this point, um, even though she does seem rather mature and she has a kid and she's married, but she didn't, it didn't dawn on her that people live in Hawaii. She just thought that they vacation in Hawaii and she was like, okay, she's going to be in Hawaii for a little bit, but I still need to find where she lives. Um, and she, then it dawns on her, oh, maybe she lives in Hawaii. Maybe I should just look to see if in the information they have a Fauna Hotel and she finds the phone number uh, for uh, in Honolulu's information. So she calls Tamar and this is how that phone call goes. Hello? Hello, Tamar? Hold on. It's for you. Yes, this is Tamar, who's calling? Hello, Tamar? This is Fauna, your daughter. What, Fauna? Fauna's right here, hold on a minute. Fauna, it's for you. Hi, it's me. Hello, is this Tamar? No, this is Fauna, what do you want? What? I wanna speak to Tamar. Well, okay, who is this? This is Fauna, her daughter, she gave away as a baby 20 years ago. So this is where Fauna finds out that there's another Fauna. Tamar named her next daughter Fauna. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, try, yeah. try number two. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, so I actually found out after this book, they don't really mention it in, in this book, but the daughter's actual name was Deborah Elizabeth and Tamar spent her whole life talking about Fauna and how, oh, my other daughter, she's so wonderful, Fauna this, Fauna that, to the point where Deborah Elizabeth finally was like, you know what, I can be Fauna, call me Fauna, so at least I can feel special, you know, I can be the replacement Fauna. But how would you feel? You're searching for your mother and she's replaced you, you know, that's at least, she didn't replace her, but that's, that's definitely how it would feel, at least. Yeah. So, Tamar goes on and says, This can't be happening. This isn't real. Oh, God, I didn't understand who you were. Fauna, I thought you wanted Fauna. My daughter, my other daughter, her name is Fauna, too. This is unbelievable. And then, so, Fauna finally asks, Is my real father a Negro? And she says, Tamar says, is your father a Negro? Oh, of course not. He was some Italian playboy from the neighborhood where I grew up. I don't even remember his name. And just like that, in four or five words, oh no, of course not. Her whole identity is gone. Who she believed her whole life that she was is laughed off in the matter of seconds. Yeah, that's yeah pretty it's pretty heavy. awful. Yeah. 
so uh, a few weeks later, she gets a letter from Fauna. Um, yeah, I'm just going to read it because Fauna is just such a, I mean, she gets a letter from Tamar. Tamar's just, I can understand why whenever Fauna meets another family member and they find out that she's met Tamar, their first thing is, you met Tamar? What did you think of her? Uh, dearest Fauna, I love you. Hello, I'm so happy that you answered, uh, that we answered the call of our hearts. I'm sitting at the edge of the sea watching your little brother's peace and joy. She also has two sons, peace, joy, and later love is born. Oh my. Yeah. They're, uh, they're, <laughs> oh uh, live, laugh, love. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're actually pretty cool. Uh, they, they actually are interviewed in Root of Evil, the podcast. Um, and they had a very difficult life growing up with Tamar. Uh, she was kind of took after her father. She was kind of a monster and a space case. But, you know, luckily they did turn out pretty normal. Uh, and the cycle of abuse ended there. Um, anyways, peace and joy. Run into the water and I will join them when I am through writing. The, writing. Light candles and wait for your answers. So sorry that I lost you. Has been a long, sad time for me in my mind and heart. Please tell me of your life of your heart, of how you have lived. I said your father was a Negro because I love black people so much and thought that you were mine to raise with love. Before, before I, yeah, right? <laughs> like you don't get to just choose like what Christopher Durang, baby with the bathwater is going on here, you know, where she thinks she gets to choose the race of her child and there will be no consequences for this. How dare her, honestly. Anyways, okay. Before I knew that I could not keep you with me, it was too late. And I did not know what to do. Your actual real flesh and blood father was a local playboy, Italian, in our neighborhood. Maybe about 22 years to my 16. And I don't remember his name because I pushed him from my memory because our understanding levels were so different. I live now in a house in Kai, Kailua with the children. Peace, four, and a Leo, two, a boy. Joy, and Aries, two, in July, two in July, and his mother, your sister, Deborah, or Fauna, two. They literally call her Fauna, two. <laughs> Who will be 17 in October? Scorpio. She waits for her baby's father, Michael to join them in Hawaii from LA and my latest baby whose name is love a smiling boy and a Gemini I'm not married but am fortunate enough to share my life with a beautiful friend named Wendy she is visiting with us after a time apart from us she will be returning to Dixon California by the end of September for a few months before uh, before he returns to live with us here and uh, open a health food restaurant and others uh, and other things. So I believe Dixon, California is close to Reno. I would be it would be beautiful if you could come could meet and talk. 
I will send the address to you. Please send me a picture of you and your loved ones. I love you. Thanking God, all the power, love that I am able to speak these sweet words tomorrow. P.S. Here's the phone number of my dear friends, Michelle Phillips and Warren Beatty. I would like for you to call them. Also, the number of Kenny number for Kenny Ortega is da, 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 da. you can ask them questions about me if you want. Now, if you know anything about Michelle Phillips, she also had a rapey father and a pretty messed up, drugged out life. Um, yeah, and I know in Black Dolly Avenger, they kind of get into a little bit more about. Uh, Michelle and Tamar's relationship. So, hmm. <sighs> at one point, Fauna does visit Dorothy in San Francisco. Dorothy is uh, is Tamar's mother. And Dorothy gives Fauna the Fillmore family records. So basically, Dorothy's background, but not the Hodel background. And she discovers... Uh, she discourage her, discourages her from contacting Tamar. Basically, everybody thinks that Tamar is this big liar and is a dangerous person to be around. So she does visit. Uh, she at one point decides that she, or is able, at one point, she is able to visit Dorothy, Tamar's mother, in San Francisco. Dorothy gives Fauna the Fillmore family records. So Dorothy's side of the family, not the Hodel side. Um, and she discourages Fauna from contacting Tamar. Um, so one thing, though, that I thought was very interesting is that the house was they are She's obviously very wealthy and cultured and thinks very highly of herself and her lineage uh, and also thinks very highly of George Hodel even though they're not together at this point. So a few weeks later, Fauna meets a gentleman named William Sharpstein Jr. He is an engineer extraordinaire. Very, uh, what do I say? Uh, flamboyant, smart, well-dressed, uh, well-dressed man and a black gentleman. Uh, and he's the project engineer for Bill Lear. His real name's Bill Sharp, but he goes by William Sharpstein Jr. And he's uh, responsible for establishing the design criteria, criteria for the steam turbine. So very smart, successful. She eventually leaves her struggling marriage with Bobby Ward, who is Yvette's father, for Bill Sharp. Um, and Bill Sharp encourages her, supports her through her her journey, which Bobby really never did. So she now has this great gentleman behind her, um, and she finally decides that she's going to go visit Tamar in Hawaii. So she, along with her daughter Yvette, uh, go to Honolulu. They fly there, and Tamar is four hours late picking them up at the airport and uh when she shows up she's just like kind of falling all over the place like oh it's been a day da, 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 da. and she's 
driving or she has a friend driving her with in this hippie van with her three sons in tow peace joy and love uh, <laughs> and uh she takes them back to her house which is sparsely furnished a beautiful house however on the water and she tells fauna everything at this point so bear with me this is this is what happened Years ago, before you were born, I was involved in a nationally publicized incest trial with my father. It was actually a criminal trial having to do with incestuous relations between me and my father. My father made love to me. There was a trial and a jury acquitted. Uh, there was a trial and a jury acquitted him. So that means in the eyes of the law, he's not guilty. The whole thing was in all the newspapers and magazines across the country. Of course, at the time, I didn't realize it was being so heavily publicized because they kept me in juvenile hall in Los Angeles during the whole thing, almost a year when I, when I came out. Then she goes, let me start from the beginning. My mother and father were never married. They lived together for a while. He was in the process of a divorce from another wife. My earlier years as a baby were spent in San Francisco. When I was old enough, I heard about my father, the fabulous wealthy doctor who now lived in a magnificent Hollywood house designed by Lloyd Wright, Frank Lloyd Wright's son, called the Shangri-La. I wanted to go there. So uh, I wanted to go there, who wouldn't? In my mind, I immediately envisioned, serv envisioned servants, fountains, and statues, fancy limousines, swimming pools, everything. Uh, so my mother made arrangements to have me move down from San Francisco. When I arrived, it was almost like I was in a dream world. It took me a while to be able to see my father. He was always busy with something or another. Most of the time, he'd send me off to his library to read books. But the interesting thing was that his library was filled with books that dealt with the fantasy world of gods and goddesses, all making love. A friend of mine who knew him called him the first avant-garde. He was very handsome and mysterious. In their home, the cinder parts that covered the outside was where they lay naked in the sun. There was a whole bevy of servants. You didn't have to do anything. His whole life was dedicated to sex. At age 11, this was very interesting to me. So he has a big collection of the erotica that he lets his 11-year-old daughter peruse through. It's, wow. it's his thing, um, you know? To kind of tag on the end of that, it's interesting when you're talking about bathing nude in the sun. Um, after the Dahlia case, um, George knew he was being watched, and he said that we that we have to look out for people watching us while we sunbathe from now on. Mm. So that kind of ties in. That's that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, so he really did sunbathe nude with his own. Oh yeah. With his own daughter. Yeah. Not to mention the other horrible stuff he obviously did, but yeah, it's like. Oh, oh yeah, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Just casually hang out. So let's continue. <laughs> he, he began my sex education.
by giving me the whole library. It was a fairy tale library, not erotic or violent like American pornography, but about gods and goddesses and kings and knights and fair maidens. In those stories, if you arrived at the gate, you went to the gatekeeper and made love. After the gatekeeper, you went to the housekeeper and the other servants before you got to see the mother and father. And that's the way I thought it was. I didn't know any better. This is the way the stories went. In his house, it was like that too. These lines of women waiting to see my father. It wasn't objective, but just wanted to see my, or it wasn't objective, but just wanted to see my father. Most of the time, I was just shushed off to read books. So my father did let me have oral sex with him when I was 11. He told me it was a special privilege. I wasn't quite sure if it if this was okay, so I went to mother and asked her. She then told my father, who turned to her and said, Dorothy, she's making the same accus accusations about you and Effie. She said the two of you fondled each other. My grandmother said, how ridiculous. He was clever. He just turned the cards around and blamed me. Ugh, right? Oh my God. My grandmother was so concerned about her own reputation that she never investigated any further. She didn't know about this until later, so all that happened concerning my education was about giving him head and reading books. Then I went back to be with my mother in San Francisco. When I returned at 12 the following summer, I wanted to put more of this back into practice. He promised that when I was 16, he would give me the honor of making love to him and I would become a woman. I wanted to be a woman much faster, naturally. I was just right for the whole situation. Then one day, uh, when I was to see my father, he had a whole bedroom full of people and was about to hypnotize one of them. I sat down to join them and the next thing I knew, they were in an orgy. My father said, everyone out of the room and he was with me except one woman who was there for a while and then she said oh my god this is dreadful and then ran out i think her, i think her name was connie well i became pregnant immediately and at this point fauna is now really concerned that this is her the that yeah. you know her grandfather is also her father yeah right my father well ever so amused this is uh said, this is interesting, but I didn't think it was interesting. I felt that all of a sudden everything was going to be a lot of trouble. So I told one of my girlfriends at Hollywood High, and she said that I should have an abortion. I didn't know what an abortion was other than it would have made me not pregnant, and that seemed okay. So I asked my father for an abortion, and he said that he didn't believe in them, and he was going to send me away to a home to have the baby but I didn't want to go to a home. So I begged everybody else for an abortion and he, and he was afraid of all the talk and finally arranged for my abortion. And when I got one, I hated it. No anesthetic at age 13, screaming oh in God. the middle of, of it to stop. And then the person who was driving me to the abortion, a friend of my father raped me in the car and I was just freaked out. I told my father what happened 
when I got back and he became furious. Things became stranger. I went to my stepmother, Doraro, that is, and she said, enough, that's it. And then she told me a story about a woman that my father dated who was a nurse who was very much in love with him. Doraro was, was called in to get two manuscripts for books that the woman was writing about my father. One was a novel, the other, and the other factual, and to burn them. The woman had committed suicide. She had taken pills and my father was waiting for her to die. So Doraro burned the books. My father signed the death certificate and everything, and everything was very suspicious. So I was afraid of that. So this woman died of pills in his presence who just so happened to be writing a manuscript about him that mm. he wanted Doraro to burn. Like, what? <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know. Um, I decided to run away to the house where some friends of mine lived and hide. Their parents were away in Europe, so I went there. The servants kept an eye on everything. And I think my stepmother, Doraro, called my mother and said something was going on. She immediately came down. Oh, so he had two wives, Doraro, who is named Dorothy, who's Steve's mother, and Dorothy, who she went to visit in San Francisco, who is Tamar's mother. Um, yeah, and this is Tamar talking, so very confusing. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of people in this, so bear with me. So... I didn't know what to do. I was on the run and one boy after another began to hide me. I got, it got to be a great drama. I was finally found by the police and they said that they already knew about my father. Years earlier, he had been investigated about the Black Dahlia murder. Hmm. Well, when I was about 10 or 11, my father told me one day the police the police were coming to investigate them and that they should keep their clothes on because they had spies looking for all kinds of things. So I said, okay. There was a murderer in the area at that time. A woman's body had been found dissected, apparently by someone very capable who knew the workings of the human body like a physician, like my father. He was found, his name was found in her little black book. So that is why they investigated him. And I don't know why still to this day, I really don't care one way or another, but I would like to know if I'm safe with my father. And, and that's what I don't know. George is very powerful and pers a persuasive man. He hasn't done anything by, if he hasn't done anything by now, after all, I put him through at least, uh, so after all I've put him through, at least that everybody thinks I've put him through, then I don't believe there is anything to worry about. Don't get me wrong. I love my father. After all this, right? Mm -hmm. She's still like, I love him, you know? <laughs> As the Black Dolly name kept coming up in movies constantly, I never thought much of it. Then, a few years ago, I was reading an article in a magazine about the Black Dahlia that someone had brought me when suddenly I got a frightening chill when I saw the victim's real name was Elizabeth Ann. Now, I don't know. It may be all a coincidence, but I'm not accusing anyone. I'd like to know, sure, but my father, above all, was a charming man. 
who could entertain. There were always beautiful people around him. He could do whatever he wanted, but he could be cruel, and he was and is a genius. So I didn't know what they knew. They were going to examine me. I assumed they knew about the abortion. I didn't know. So I told all. He forgot to tell me to lie. They arrested him, and they put me in juvenile hall to protect me and told me to wait there. After uh, they sprayed me with insecticide, it was horrible. They kept me there, and that was the worst. Oh, I skipped a part. Did I? She thought that the Elizabeth Ann was interesting because George Hodel had uh, told her to name her doll Elizabeth Ann, which was very out of the blue because he normally... Uh, he normally gave them, like, Dolly. Dolly, this and that, Sally. you know. So these people come to ask about... Uh, ask about... Um, the Black Dahlia murder, and she wasn't didn't know to lie, so she ends up telling them everything about the incest and all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, and it goes on and on. And she ends up, uh, she has this fascination with pretty black girls, and she ends up running away to a friend's house, and a friend of that friend rapes her and she gets pregnant and the kid ends up being fauna uh so so she says yes he's your father but don't ask me who he is i've forgotten his name i blocked it right out of the incident and basically she okay so She says, the next thing I knew, I was shipped off to St. Elizabeth's home for unwed mothers where the nuns were very kind, but everyone seemed to be treating pregnancy as if it were a disease. And I was told that I couldn't keep the baby and my mother wasn't going to go through that, which meant that she wouldn't be responsible. But they told me that they found a wonderful wealthy couple, wealthy couple, to raise the baby. Oh, yeah, wealthy, not just a random woman in a bathroom, Uh, (laughs) right? I remember being told that I would never be able to see my baby, but that my baby would be raised in a wonderful way with all the things that I couldn't have. Well. (laughs) Tamar, you mean you never met Jimmy when you were at St. Elizabeth's, Fauna asked? Oh, no, my duty in the nursery, we all had jobs there. Uh, was to take care of a little baby named Patricia. And it was very ironic because she was taking care of a little girl at this hospital who happened to be named Patricia. And this ends up being Fauna's name later on. Yeah. So she never meets Jimmy. She's told she's going mm-hmm. off to this wealthy family. She's going to be taken care of. And that's not what happens at all. At all. So I wanted only two things. I didn't think they'd let me have what I wanted, but one was that your name, you be named Fauna, and the other was that you at least have on your birth certificate that your father was Negro, because in my little world, I believe that black people were made of far superior stuff than the whites I knew. 
And that's a that's a nice sentiment to think. <laughs> yeah, right. But it also messes with someone's identity in their life well, and it, yeah. there's consequences to it. Yeah, of course that's very noble of her to say, yeah. like you said, but yeah, it's not not gonna help serve you no. well later in life at all. Yeah. Oh boy. Uh so George actually calls Tamar, well, Fauna is there visiting. Uh, and of course he goes, well, what do you think of Tamar? Um, on the phone. And it's all just very odd that Tamar's still in contact with her dad and still idolizes him, even though he had to leave the country because of this whole incest thing. It's just very bizarre. It's so bizarre. Um, so Billy comes out, Billy Sharp comes out to Hawaii and visits Fauna while she's there with Tamar. And this is his opinion of Tamar. He says, she is a victim, a perpetual victim, or at least she appears to be. Anyone who hears that story would believe that she's she has been carrying the weight of the world on her shoulder. And she tells it all so well. She's an amazing woman. She gets all the attention she needs without having to ask. People want to make things right so they give her what she needs at the time for nothing or at the very least, what she can't afford to pay. Does she work? And Fauna says, no, she never worked. You mean like a real job? No, never. So she just kind of floats around the earth like <laughs> things are going to be bestowed upon her and there are no consequences for anything. Uh, and it's also frustrating, you know, because everyone else lives in reality except for the hotels. They live in however they want to live in so anyways she returns home at this time fauna is living in san diego and she returns home uh and she starts to notice that she's being followed by two men uh an asian man and a caucasian man uh and she knows that she's been followed before she's seen these two guys she's had these weird instances that happens before uh deborah elizabeth or Fauna too visits uh, Fauna in San Diego and she tells her that uh, there is no inheritance. You're not ever going to come into this money, you know, that Jimmy has said that you would get, you know, at some point in your life and also tells her not to trust Tamar. Uh, they both go visit Dorothy Dorero, uh, and Fauna is introduced to Steve Hodell and also Kelly Hodell, who is there. Uh, and they both ask her, what do you think of Tamar? Um, and uh, she says that uh, she had talked to George Hodell while she was out there and that they are still in contact. Uh and Kelly says, George is not an easy person to get a hold of. He's very mysterious. Uh, he always makes an appointment for us to see him. He doesn't just drop in like most fathers. No, not the mysterious Dr. Hodel. He meet, he'll meet us all together at the most posh restaurant in one of their private rooms. George is exceedingly rich. He's never without his bodyguards and his chauffeur and his bevy of beautiful women. Some Asian, some black, all beautiful, and dressed in the most fantastic clothes and jewelry. It's unbelievable. So even George makes a show to his children to prove that he's better than them and <laughs> keeps them all at this arm's length. 
but everybody's still so in awe of him and it's just so bizarre like they're just he's so wealthy he's so rich he's this and that whatever and fauna asks them what about the incest thing and they say well we don't really know in 25 years neither one has changed their stories tamar has everything to gain by saying that she made the whole thing up i mean my father would probably give her a trust fund if she changed her mind on the other hand they went to court and everyone heard all the evidence the the psychiatrist my mother my grandmother everyone said she was was trouble a liar a storyteller the jury acquitted him so even if he did do it and admitted it he wouldn't get into trouble with the police he can't be tried twice for the same crime right double jeopardy all that stuff so most of the family pretty much thinks tamar is a liar and you know i don't i think i mean it happened it happened and it messed with her head and she became a, a terrible human being because of it you Dur know during the trial george hodell stated that he was actually just performing hypnosis and that she doesn't know what she was talking it's like what like yeah like what do you what? come up with yeah. this shit you know like yeah that trial was so so sorry yeah <laughs> no it was it was, it was so totally they show her a picture of George Hodel because at this point she's only talked to him on the phone and had a couple letters and she realizes that that is the man who has been following her around her whole life. You know, well not her whole life, but for some time now, you know. That weekend she gets a call out of the blue from her cousin Johnny. Um, this call ends with a click and now there have been several times where she's been receiving phone calls a lot between William Sharp and her, who's the man that she's married to at this time, that have this click, which is when someone is listening on or recording your phone call. And uh, William Sharp or Bill Sharp has said that he's gotten that click before on some of his phone calls, you know. Um, and some weird things have happened since Billy has been with, uh, with Tamar, I mean, with Fauna. Uh, he's been offered jobs that are, like, way out of his league, and his, uh, his, um, business that he works for, Bill Lear, has taken a special interest in him out of nowhere. Uh, it's all very strange. Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, she gets this weird call from... Her cousin Johnny and Johnny keeps bringing up how they used to play together and sleep together in the same bed and they kind of like had baths together and kid stuff but it all feels very oddly sexual and like he's trying to get her to admit that they did something as kids and this phone call is obviously being listened in and I think by George Hodel you know so it always seems very weird uh so the day that she's supposed to meet up with Johnny, because he's like, oh, I'm going to come out to San Diego and visit you. She receives a phone call from Barbara, who's Johnny's sister, that he's been found drowned uh, in the river with his penis cut off Whoa. and in his mouth. Oh. Right? <laughs> what is this? Now, mind you, I... I gave this book to my mother to read. Um, <laughs> and I didn't finish it till much after because I'm a very slow read. And my mother 
devours books. And I just remember her being like, I didn't like the end. I thought it was terrible. I didn't oh, like the end. And I was no. like, oh, well, I was like, mom, you know, it's a true story. You know, we can't pick the ending. Right. You know, we can't make it a happy ending. And I didn't know what she meant. And then like months later, I was like, oh my God, what did I give to my mother? Right, you're like, maybe, oh, maybe they should have omitted the penis in the mouth. But oh what is that? Like, what is happening here? You yeah. know, it obviously someone's trying to send Fauna a message, you know. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Jimmy dies. Uh, Fauna is at her bedside at the end of the book. And that is the end of this story in this book. Pretty much ends there with this odd occurrence with Johnny phone call out of the blue or him being murdered penis in the mouth what is that and then a very sentimental you know farewell to her mother her mother basically saying hey I did the best I could with you under the circumstances you know I I knew you were special I didn't want to give you away you were mine even though you didn't belong to me so she kind of makes a vow to her mother after her mother passes away, she makes a, a prayer to her mother that she will do whatever she can to make sure that Jimmy gets the one thing she wanted in her life, and that was to be famous. So, in 1991, she begins to make a movie about her life. The movie, the names are all changed. The movie's entitled uh, Hattie's Baby. Uh, it's supposed to be directed, or it was being directed by Ivan Passer, starring Alfie, Alfie uh, Woodard. Uh, and the film is mysteriously shut down two days before completion and never gets made. Now, her memoir, this book that I have just been reading out of, One Day She'll Darken, The Mysterious Beginnings of Fauna Hotel, is published by Outskirt Press in 2008. Uh, later she is contacted by Patty Jenkins, wonderful director behind Wonder Woman to create a mini series. And she is consulted on it. Uh, however, Fauna Hudel dies of breast cancer at age 66 on September 30th, 2017. Uh, She makes this promise to Jimmy on her, uh, after she passes away, she makes this prayer that she is going to give Jimmy the one thing that she had always wanted and that was to be famous. So Fauna will make her story known. She will make Jimmy known. So in 1991, she begins to make a movie about her story. The names are changed for legal reasons. The movie is called Hattie's Baby, directed by Ivan Passer, starring Alfie... Uh, Alfrey Woodard and the film is mysteriously shut down two days before its completion. This is 1991. George Hodel doesn't pass away till 1999. So he would have been alive and I truly believe that he was the one that shut that movie down because mm-hmm. he doesn't want any of this coming out at all, you know. So but, you know, he does pass away in 1999. So her memoir, the book that I just read, One Day She'll Darken the Mysterious Beginnings of Fauna Hotel is published by Outskirt Press in 2008. She is later uh, contacted, later in her life, contacted by Patty Jenkins, the great, uh, by Patty Jenkins, the great director 
uh, behind the Wonder Woman movies uh, to do a miniseries. Fauna Hudel dies of breast cancer at age 66 on September, September 30th, 2017. In 2019, the six-episode limited series I Am the Night, starring India Isley and Chris Pine, directed uh, by Patty Jenkins, uh, airs on TNT. It is very, very loosely based on One Day She'll Darken, uh, but they get a lot correct. The only thing that's really kind of not true is Chris Pine's character is all fabricated, but Jimmy is in the story, Fauna is in the story, George Hodel, the whole mystery, the struggle of her identity, the struggle of the race relations, it's all there. It is a fabulous series. On February, in February, in February of 2019, Fauna's two daughter, Rasha Pe Pecoro and Yvette Gentile, Yvette we've talked about mm -hmm. quite a bit, she went to Hawaii, produced a podcast called Root of Evil, produced by uh, Cadence 13, along with TNT, an eight-episode podcast that delves further into the family's history. They interview Steve, Kelly, they interview Peace, Love, and Joy. They interview Deborah Elizabeth. Uh, they have voice recordings from Fauna herself. Uh, it ran for eight consecutive weeks, and it was ranked the number one podcast. It is well worth getting into, you know, uh, after listening to all this, well worth getting into that I couldn't get into as much as they do because we would just be here forever and it gets it's so much there is so much there mm -hmm. uh but you know the name of fauna hodel has been immortalized jimmy has been immortalized her story is out there it should be heard and i'm very proud to tell it and that oh i'm gonna get teary-eyed that was <laughs> the wonderful inspirational interesting dark story of fauna hodel <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh yeah but coming back with part two of parts two of the black dahlia story uh teresa has uh some conspiracies to talk about <laughs> over here uh, and i'm very interested actually yeah. uh, I know a little bit about what you're about to talk about but uh, I'm hoping to be surprised um, mm. so well, yeah hopefully I can surprise you oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> turned into a totally different podcast uh, <laughs> yeah I know that could sound kind of weird but I've had a little bit of wine not too much yeah, but... <laughs> and now PJ is sniffing my Oh, Place. man, it's happening. Finally. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> um, let's see. Well, yes. Uh, conspiracies? Yeah, I don't know. You could call it a conspiracy. Um, but, uh, yeah, I came across uh, this article on a website called, um, I want to make sure I get the name right, called crimereads.com. Um, and I haven't looked at their other stuff yet because I was Black Dahlia focused. 
Um, but um, <laughs> it does seem like they have quite a bit of um, quite a bit of material on there. I'm interested. Surrounding different yeah. true crimes. Yeah. Um, let me just say that this article was very long, very very long, <laughs> um, but it was worth it uh, because. And I actually, that's how I happened upon the information was just online. Um, it was actually shared on social media. The crime reads was, I think it was on Facebook. So um, Hidden LA, I think I shared that with you guys. So I was mm -hmm. like, you know, that's where I first found it. I thought it was really, really interesting because doing this little tour here, Hollywood's Haunted, uh, we go with the, <laughs> with obviously, as you've heard already, the main theory that, um, you know, George Hodel is a very likely uh, possible suspect culprit in the Black Dahlia murder, mm -hmm. still unsolved to this day. However, there is a man out there that believes unequivocally <laughs> that George Hodel is absolutely not the killer. And that man's name is Larry Harnish. Um, so actually, when I was listening last night to you guys, mm -hmm. uh, Patrick mentioned Larry Harnish's name. So I got excited. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's who I'm actually talking about. Um, but yes, Larry Harnish, uh, you know, through and through does not believe that uh, George Hodel killed Elizabeth Short at all. Um, he believes actually that another man killed Elizabeth Short and that man's name is Walter Bailey and I'll get into him a little bit. Uh, yeah. But he, but, but just so you know who Larry Harnish is, um, he did used to write for the Los Angeles Times um, and he actually started out um, as a uh, as a copy editor, and then he uh, he actually kind of got his his big break, you could say, um, with the anniversary, with the fiftieth anniversary uh, event of the Black Dahlia murder. Um, so he actually um, this was back in um, nineteen ninety seven. It was actually the 50th anniversary at that time of the Black Dahlia murders here. Um, and uh, he, Larry actually, um, he, he tipped off one of the other editors at the LA Times about it. And he, he expected the job to be given to some other writer there at the time. Mm -hmm. But the editor said to him, no, why don't you just take it? And he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely take it because he wanted to be a writer um, and he wanted to do more at the paper. So he took the job and he wound up writing an article about it. Um, and uh, yeah, he, <laughs> it all kind of started from there. He, he just kind of um, became very, very involved in finding out every bit of material that he possibly could about um, this case. And uh, he's considered by some people to apparently be LA's most knowledgeable uh, Black Dahlia authority. 
Now I know that that would be heavily contested by <laughs> Steve Hodel. Steve. Yeah. <laughs> by Steve Hodel. Yeah. Um, but however, this is, you know, like I said, another side of the coin. Um, and they're very interesting because, you know, um, thinking about one theory for so long, I mean, for me personally, and not having really investigated other other theories, mm -hmm. um, which I knew were out there, but didn't really focus on any of them. So it to me, it's, it's almost like, well, oh, there's that's a whole other angle I didn't yeah. even think of there. And what does he have to say? So what he does have to say, which I will get into, is is very interesting. Um, and I'm not entirely, I, I don't know myself that I'm convinced one way or the other, you know, mm -hmm. between um, Larry Harnish's theory or between Steve Hodel's theory. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but, so let's get into more background about uh, Larry Harnish. So like I said, he worked for the LA Times and then um, he retired in 2015 and he worked there for 27 years as a copy editor, feature writer, columnist, and a blogger. Um, he has studied this case off and on for 24 years now and interviewed more than 150 people from the first officer on the scene to the woman who discovered the body and many people in between. He's still currently, to this day, writing a book about the case, but he is writing it exclusively from uh, a standpoint with focus on the homicide and investigation. Um, and his research uh, in entirety about the Black Dahlia like I said, began when he was a copy editor at the LA Times, and he wrote that um, 50th anniversary piece. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where it all started for him. Um, and uh, before I get into more specifics about, uh, you know, what what he actually believes, he, Larry Harnish thinks that the black and I thought I just thought this was interesting, just with the case in general, but. Um, he believes that there's still such an obsessive focus on the Black Dahlia case and murder because of three reasons. Well, he added a fourth one, but the first three reasons are taken from the theory of the original detectives. So the first reason it's still an obsessive focus is number one, it's unsolved. Number two, the nickname. Number three, uh, the horrible nature of the crime. And number four, he added is the noir element to all of it. The oh, post-World yeah. War II. I mean, II. I agree with all of right, that. Right, yeah. <laughs> the post right. The post-World War II, you know, LA, we see Elizabeth Short um, in, you know, late 1940s. And so it's all very um, romantic in that sense. So, mm -hmm. so um, yeah, I just thought that was interesting because when you stop and think about why we are still obsessed with the case other yeah. than the fact that it's unsolved. Um, yeah, I definitely. And it wasn't the only unsolved case at that time of a woman being murdered. Um, right. It, it kind of happened a lot. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, at the time, I know James Elroy, his, his mother was strangled mm -hmm. 
you know, around the same time of the Black Dahlia murder and, uh, yeah, I don't think that ever was solved. So, yeah. Anyways. No, no, no. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's, you know, that is why we still look to it because, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, personally for me, yeah, I, it's easy kind of, I mean, when I first started doing the tour with you guys, I thought, you know, immediately gravitated to wanting to know more about the Black Dahlia story just because I only knew a little bit of it going into, going into the tour and learning more Mm -hmm. about it. Um, it's super layered, obviously. I mean, look at, we're already doing two parts on it and possibly a third. So (laughs) there's a lot to go on. Um, but back to Larry, um, like I said, I have to say again, because for any uh, skeptics out there, Larry Harnish believes through and through George Hodel did not kill Elizabeth Short. Um, he's very, very aggressive about it, too, by the way, I will say. Um, <laughs> going to his, uh, uh, which isn't bad, you know, it's not a bad mm-hmm. thing, but he's he's got a definite... Um, He's got an air about him that, you know, this is what I believe. And if you don't believe this, you can go somewhere else. <laughs> He's got his website um, that I went to and looked at all of the stuff. Uh, he's got a lot of stuff. And he even puts that out there on his own website. He says, yes, I know it's a lot of stuff. If you want to take the time, you will. Mm-hmm. And you'll go through it and look through everything um, because there's a lot of that I have uncovered um so let's get into it let's see um well talking about the person that Larry Harnish thought committed this crime uh Walter Bailey he was also not unlike George Hodel uh he was also a medical doctor um however um he was a lot different in many ways as well Um, firstly, he was not one of the first original, uh, 24 suspects that they had. Um, if you look, um, if you search online for Walter Bailey today, you'll see that he's listed as a recent suspect, which is Mm -hmm. weird, weird to say, (laughs) but that, that just means post the time of the original list that they had going around. So he was an LA surgeon, um, he lived one block south of the vacant lot where uh, Elizabeth's body was found. Uh, and, and he lived there actually, just to be very correct about everything, he lived there until he left his wife in 1946. So that was a year before Elizabeth was killed. Um, but that's they, the wife still lived there. So mm-hmm. that, that's a point I'll get back to later. Um, the other thing was that um, Walter Bailey's daughter, whose name was Barbara Lindgren, she was a friend of Elizabeth's uh, oldest sister, Virginia. And she actually, Barbara Lindgren, his daughter, wound up being the matron of honor at Virginia's wedding, oddly enough, mm-hmm. in Inglewood. Um But Bailey himself, he died in January 1948. Uh, The autopsy revealed that he had a degenerative brain disease. Um, 
and his widow actually alleged that his mistress knew a quote terrible secret about Bailey and was made main beneficiary upon his death as a result. He was never a suspect in the case. He was 67 years old at the time of the murder. There was no known history of violence or criminal activity and he was not known to have met Short. So you might think, well, why did Larry Harnish believe that this was even possible? Um, he, I mean, my answer to that is he just came up with not, maybe not unlike Steve Podell, who he <laughs> vehemently, you know, uh, accuses of just basically making money off of, uh, Elizabeth Short and her mm -hmm. family's name, which he may well be, you know, yeah. um, but at the same time, uh, it's hard not to, after, after kind of thinking about both, for me, it's kind of hard not to say to myself, well, you know, they both have <laughs> uh, things that they believe, they both have discrepancies. Um, perhaps Steve Hodell has a little more confirmation bias. That's, you know, possible, but, um, the theories that that uh, that Larry Harnish came up with, um, a couple of them, he theorized that uh, that Walter Bailey's neurological deterioration contributed to his violence against Short. Um, so let's get into his what was going on with him. He had a neuro. I'm not saying this right. <laughs> neurodegenerative condition. And it was known to produce violent behavior in otherwise passive individuals. But there's like a, another part to that. So the neuro, neuro, I cannot say this word, neurodegenerative condition. <laughs> this is another medical term. N, encephalomalacia. Oh my God. I just murdered that term. Uh, no pun, pun intended. And yeah. <laughs> Oh God, I'm not gonna say it again. But the, it's a structural lesion in the brain, and it's a softening of brain tissue. So that's what Walt, that's what happened to Walter Bailey. Um, and uh, Larry Harnish. Um, so let me get get this straight again for the record. So unlike Steve Hodell who obviously was a former LAPD detective. Um, Larry Harnish was not involved in law enforcement in any way. He was never a detective. He was strictly, he is strictly a copywriter, a writer, you know. Um, so just looking for the facts type of thing. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, you could look at it that way that he, he also too doesn't really have anything to gain in that way, I guess. He just wants to, um, he wants to, he, he keeps saying in everything that I've read that he wants to clear Elizabeth's name, uh, so to speak, you know, because of all of these things that have been said about her that um, some of the stuff you guys talked about last night, you know, all the rumors that swirled around her. Um, 
he he really wants to get things accurate. He wants everyone to get the story accurate um, according to what you know he feels it should be. Um, and uh, so these are kind of the things that he's he's still working towards this day. Um, excuse me. But getting back to um, other reasons why he thinks that uh, it was Walter Bailey. Um, so Walter Bailey, as a surgeon, his specializations uh, included mastectomies, hysterectomies, and the removal of fat. And Ooh. yeah, it's, I know it starts to get, yeah, it starts to get a little like, even I was kind of like, after hearing the Hodel theory for so long, I was kind of like, hmm, all that is interesting. Yeah, because it wasn't the body given a hysterectomy. And it, yeah, I mean, it was definitely dissected and, you know, we've, we've, I feel like I've said it so many times on the tour, <laughs> like, it's like, and her body was split in two and it's all very, you know, cold, but I mean, it's horrifying. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, yeah. So no, exactly. Uh, his office, his doctor's office was only a few blocks from the Biltmore hotel. So, oh, wow. Yeah. It's really interesting to note that. So now he not only lives a block away or he lived a block away, you know, from where Elizabeth's body was found, but his wife still owns that property. So he does technically mm -hmm. still live a block away from there. And then his doctor's office, his medical office is only a few blocks from the Biltmore. We know she went to the Biltmore. Um, but then uh, Larry Harnish, he interviewed uh, Bailey's former secretary. He learned that um, Bailey and his mistress would, at dinner time, watch movies of surgeries and autopsies. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, as they're eating their pork chops. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, God. Um, I mean, I'm not one to say what's weird behavior, oh, but God. that does seem a little odd. It's definitely, I can, I mean, I try to have a strong stomach, but oh, yeah. <laughs> I, Josh knows I don't even like to talk about certain things during dinner. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I do not have a strong stomach uh, when people talk about surgeries and stuff. Like, I will pass out. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. So this would not, watching a surgery while you tried to eat your dinner would not be for you. Oh, God. It would yeah. be pretty traumatic, actually. Yeah, right? I, don't, I really don't think it would be for most people, honestly. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm going to say. But, um, yeah, this is, he, that's the thing about Larry Harnish. He, um I don't know, and I'm not about to compare either, but I don't know how many people on the whole Steve Hodell has interviewed, but it seems mm -hmm. like to me, just what I've seen of Mr. Harnish, that he definitely, like, yeah, obsessed with the case, mm -hmm. most definitely. I mean, it, um, it, it, it kind of put a strain on his marriage even. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I mean, he had a wife and uh one son i believe and uh researching all of this took a big toll um and actually you mentioned james elroy uh before and <laughs> that was actually a big source of disappointment for larry harnish because um uh larry harnish's theory about 
Walter Bailey was heavily endorsed by James Elroy mm -hmm. in 2001. Um, they were putting out, uh, I think it was, uh, I mean, it's a film, um, but I'm drawing a blank now on whether it was a documentary or, I think it was a documentary, um, but by James Elroy, and he fully endorsed the theory um, mm -hmm. on Larry Harnish. But then, in 2003, when Black Talia Avenger came out, he started backing Steve Hodel. So yeah. he basically just totally went back on Larry Harnish. So, mm -hmm. uh, And then the article that started all of this, when I was reading the initial article, um, the, the man that wrote that article, he interviewed James Elroy at one point for something or another. And he asked him, you know, which theory do you actually uh, believe? Do you go with, um, you know, uh, with, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> with Larry Garnish or do you go with Steve Hodel? Hmm. And um, being the time that it is today, he looked at him and he got angry and he said, I refuse to talk about two things. Uh, that's one of them, and Donald Trump is the other thing. Oh. <laughs> so. That's awesome. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so he said, I'm not going to talk about that anymore. <laughs> and what, what, because obviously, I mean, you know, yeah. you could see what he got himself into, if anything. But, um, yeah, so he he's not, I guess, going to say anything else about that. But... Um, <laughs> but Larry, uh, no, he's talk about diligent. I mean, he's interviewed a lot, a lot of people. I mean, there's, I, I narrowed it down, you know, so that it wouldn't be overwhelming, but, um, uh, the, another person that he went with that, um, I think is significant and, you know, other things I've read have said that, um, well, FBI profiling, that's not really what people go with that much anymore, you know. But back then in the 90s, mm -hmm. it was, you know, more heavily considered. But uh, you have to, I have to add, too, that, um, you know, I know we've, I've heard a lot of stuff about um, Steve Hodel and his, you know, obviously what he thinks about the case and what he thinks about his father. Um, but... I, I kind of feel that uh, it's like these two, <laughs> they both care about the case in different ways. Um, mm -hmm. Larry Harnish feels that he came on the scene first and he feels like Steve Hodel kind of messed everything up. <laughs> I think that was my take on it. Because mm -hmm. uh, he, he started theorizing and researching all this stuff in the late 90s and then Steve Hodel didn't come out with his stuff until early 2000. So I think Mr. Harnish feels like he may have gotten a jump on it and um, Steve Hodel just kind of glamorized everybody away from yeah. any other theory. But, you know, it's a theory. So, yeah. Um, but yes, he, uh, Larry Harnish, he consulted uh, retired FBI profiler John E. Douglas in putting his theory together. Um, Douglas told him the public location of the dump site was significant uh, because the killer could have 
obviously hidden the body somewhere else. And we all know that, uh, studying the case too, you know, yeah, why was, why was she dumped in the vacant lot instead mm -hmm. of, you know, hidden away somewhere else, obviously it was some kind of message. Um, right. and then Douglas took it one step further to say that, um, yes, the site was one block away from where Bailey used to live. And it could have possibly been a message to horrify and embarrass who knows, his wife, the neighborhood. Um, he definitely said, you know, it's supposed to be some kind of um, slut shaming, you know, mm -hmm. for Elizabeth Short. And that I definitely believe no one would leave any person like that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it could be pretty plausible. Um, Douglas also told him that Elizabeth's face facial lacerations indicated that there was personal anger towards the victim, mm -hmm. which we can obviously figure out is <laughs> pretty true. Um, so being that she may have possibly never met Walter Bailey, never encountered him, um, he had to come up with his own reasons on why he thought that Walter Bailey may, mm -hmm. what, why he may be the killer. So. Um, one of the things that we already know that was talked about, I think yesterday was that, um, Elizabeth would fabricate things sometimes, um, to be able to get the help that she needed from men yeah. or whomever. So, um, yeah. one of the things that she might have often said was that she had a son who died tragically and, uh, this very fact if she had met walter bailey and asked him for help or anything in any kind of way um this could have angered him because he had a son who was hit by a car and died at 11 years old um and i get bailey's his son's birthday was january 13th and elizabeth's body was found out as we know on january 15th mm -hmm. so that's the that's a possible connection he makes I, I don't know entirely if <laughs> I'm really convinced of that, but yeah. another another connection that he makes or theorizes is that um, the 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 daughter who was the matron of honor at the wedding, um, he actually did interview her. Uh, sorry, her name was Barbara Lindgren, right? Yeah, Barbara Lindgren. Um, so uh, Harnish actually does interview Barbara Lindgren. And um, she is very reluctant, actually, to, to tell him things. Um, so he finds it very suspicious. Um, he says, well, you know, your sister, she was the matron of honor. That's a big, that's a big, you know, honor at the wedding. They weren't close or anything. Mm -hmm. And he said she really didn't want to talk about any, how their relationship was. He, he asked about the murder of the Black Dahlia murder. He said, did your mother ever talk about the Black Dahlia murder? And she said, no. Um, but then before they got off their, their phone call, the interview, um, she urged him. She said, please don't let anybody know how to find me. Mm -hmm. And so he thought that was very suspicious. Um, but once again, uh, 
all of these things are kind of, you know, it's just more theories that are out there. Um, but from what I have found and understood, um, Steve Hodel, his theory is out there and it's huge, but then right below it is Larry Harnish. Mm -hmm. um, and Larry Harnish, like I said, he's still writing his book right now. Mm -hmm. um, this article, um, The Crime Reads, um, and the article, by the way, it's called um, The Black Dahlia, The Long, Strange History of Los Angeles's Coldest Cold Case. Um, and it was written on or published on September 10th, uh, 2020 by Miles Corwin. Um, so it's still, you know, ongoing, obviously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just, um, it's, it's another theory that's out there. Um, but he certainly, anything that you read by him, he has very, very strong convictions, uh, towards this. So, I don't know, but he's not related to the case in, in all, I mean, in any, in any way, not like Steve Podell is. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, I found it interesting. No, I'm <laughs> very interested. I cannot wait until that book comes out. Yeah, yeah, he's still trying to write it. He said yeah. he's been, over the years, well, actually, that's, that's something that's very interesting, um, because right before... Steve Hodel came out with Black Dahlia Avenger in 2003. That's when he was almost going to come out with his book. And then Steve Hodel, that, that was another reason he, he kind of eclipsed him. So mm. yeah, now it's uh what is it? 2021. So yeah, he, in the article at the end of the article, it said that he hoped to come out with the book by next year. Ooh. Um, so yeah, maybe he's finally getting it, all of it done because, mm -hmm. um, the, the way that he was described, it sounds like this is his singular focus in life. Yeah. <laughs> so he has like a whole bunch of, um, file cabinets and stuff. He lives in South Pasadena, I think. Um, Ooh, so we should go, uh, <laughs> visit him if we can. Don't mention Steve Hodel's name, whatever you do. <laughs> oh, he has a strong, strong distaste for Steve Hodel. No, I, I was going to get into like more of the, but it's kind of just honestly Hodel bashing and I didn't want to bash go, away, go down Hodel bash. Road. It's fine. Like. <laughs> Well, no, just all the reasons. He came up with a list, actually, of reasons um, that that it wasn't George Hodel. And these mm -hmm. are all personally, you know, based on his own ideas or theories. But he gave um, six, I guess, seven reasons. Um, so he said, number one, George Hodel was never a prime suspect in the Black Dahlia case. George Hodel was not found guilty of morals charges uh, with regard to... Tamar. Tamar. Yeah. So saying he wasn't, you know, get found guilty of that. So he didn't do it. Uh, George Hodel was not pal. He was not pals with Man Ray. I'm sorry. This is directly what he said. I don't know why I'm laughing at it. But <laughs> George Hodel served the poor blacks of Bronzeville. So that, that was to refute that, um, that he had a, uh, clinic that, you know, would perform abortions mm -hmm. or, 
you know, whatever. Um, George Hodel had no surgical practice in LA. George Hodel had no connection to Elizabeth Short. Hodel didn't kill his secretary. And that was the last reason that he listed. These are just broad. I mean, he gets into the, mm-hmm. the, the whole points of, of what he believes, but it's almost, it's a complete, like everything that, that George, that, um, Steve Hodel believes about his father. It's the complete antithesis to everything that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that Larry Harnish believes. He just believes that Hodel had just no part in it at all. Um, and like I said, I don't know. I mean, he he went to the he went to extensive lengths to find out a lot of the information that he's found out. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, but when it comes down to it, who can who can say really? I mean, yeah. still, you know, that's that's the thing about this crime. It's still just um, unsolved, and there are the theories, of course, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I thought I was completely convinced about about George Hodel myself yeah. until, and I'm not really convinced on Walter Bailey, to be quite honest, but mm-hmm. I, you know, specifically, but I think that there are some interesting things there, just mm-hmm. like, I don't know. It's, it's, no, what it do is, you guys think? <laughs> I mean, it could, it could be anybody, yeah. really. Uh, I think, George Hodel is too obvious. It's almost too on the nose for it to be him. You know? And I would say George Hodel was doing so much other bad, notorious stuff that he didn't have time to murder a person. You know? Mm -hmm. He was too busy having lavish orgies at his apartment and being a sex offender, you know, for him really to have time to do that. And, like, honestly, from what I've seen, like, he didn't have interest in murdering people. It was more of manipulating people. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. That's just my theory, but... I don't know, Pat. How, what do you feel? Um. Uh, yeah, and I'm definitely a little biased, mostly just because of reading the book, mm-hmm. uh, the Black Dahlia Avengers. Um, Steve conducts it like like you would a detective case. You know, he mm-hmm. very much. Um, I think the biggest thing that points to George Hodel is that when he was 17, he created his own publishing company. And one of his first magazines, which he wrote on, was called Fantasia. Mm-hmm. And it was based on uh, uh, Fantasias Malare is what it was called. It was basically uh, the author, uh, Marquis de Sade, oh, who, right. who yeah. was a sadist, um, who wrote, the, it was basically the journey, a, a journal of like a madman going into hell or some shit. Mm, but basically, yeah. they, he dates it. He There's dates on the journal of this supposed journal that, you know, this is all fictional or whatever that he's writing, but this is based on a person or whatever. But on the, on January 15th, he cuts and poses a woman exactly the same way that black, that Elizabeth Short was posed. Mm. 
and the fact that George Hodel is so involved with Marquis de Sade and Man Ray um, yeah. makes it almost impossible that it could be someone else. Mm. Yeah. Because of how she was posed. She was not yeah. just left there. She was deliberately posed. And when she you was, look at yeah. when you look at that photo of, of Man Ray, you know, that he's recreating of the Marquis de Sade uh, article, you know, or writings, it's almost exactly the same. Yeah. So that alone makes me feel like either he did it or him and his abortion ring friends did it. I mean, is there any theory or evidence maybe that Walter Bailey and George Hodel know each other? Well, the, yeah. yeah. The I mean, right in the same circles, even, you know. That could be. Uh, Larry Harnish never mentions it, uh, just in what I've found, but. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's certainly possible, obviously, you know, yeah. I just feel like, yeah, there, there's some, um, I think that's the thing. I don't know for me anyway, what I realized, um, doing this research about Larry Harnish is that, um, yeah, there's just a, you know, a lot of different, um, avenues you could go down, yeah. you know, just finding out all the all the suspects alone, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, and all of them are not viable, obviously. Most like, of them are. Yesterday, I was know. reading off a list of suspects that they had actually seriously considered. And one Orson Welles. Orson Welles. Orson right. Welles. Yeah. 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 So it's like, yeah, it could have been anybody. Yeah. It, it, Cary Grant was, was his name. Yeah, <laughs> you know no, I mean, I mean? Like, <laughs> like, and also, like, LA was so much smaller back then. You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it wasn't that much smaller, but it was small enough to where you would look to your left and your right and be like, one of you is the killer. Right. <laughs> right. No, I mean, yeah, I was, I think I was like definitely um, pretty naive because um, I obviously hadn't done enough research yet because I was yeah. like, I, I, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not going with, I still think George Hodel is pretty convincing to me. A yeah. lot, a lot of the um, evidence, if you were, but um, it definitely opened my eyes to, like I said, al alternative. I always do like thinking about, even if it's maybe not true, <laughs> you, thinking about the alternative. I think it's important to play yeah. devil's advocate, yeah, you know, and kind of check yourself, and yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Because there's, and also finding out. I think the more the interesting thing too is finding out you know, kind of a lot of the more bizarre stuff out there, which mm -hmm. I'm sure you guys have also found, but um, I don't know if you you know about this author, Janice Knowlton. She was the mm -hmm. author of Daddy Was the Black Dahlia Killer. Mm. Yeah, she wrote this book uh, in the 70s, I believe it was. Um, but... Oh, I did hear where she thinks that because she saw her because dad, it's a like, repressed memory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. she said that. Uh, I guess it's something like Janice Knowlton said um, that she had repressed memories uh, come out because she had like a hysterectomy and mm -hmm. she had all these repressed memories come out that that her father, yeah, killed Elizabeth Short, and it's just all. It's kind of. I mean, I don't want to say wacky off the wall, but it, it is kind of wacky off the wall, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and she actually, Janice Knowlton, unfortunately, wound up committing suicide uh, in the, I think, in the 2000s. 
but uh, yeah, yeah, she had that, and then James Elroy, we already talked about, um, who didn't, he, you know, he had his, his own involvement, um, and then, oh shoot, I didn't write it down, what the heck was it called, though, you might know, one of you guys, there was another, um, book called, with, it started with an S, uh, Severed? No. Is that it? I'm sorry. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, there's another one. I mean, there's just, there's, there's a lot, as you guys know. Yeah. I so. mean, and we should definitely touch base on this subject, you know, down the line, you know, yeah. in a couple episodes from now, pose other theories, you know, everything, yeah. but the, I mean, this was very interesting. Yeah. I yeah. think it is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's um like I said, if if nothing else, if you know, if if Larry Harnish is just laboring under false pretenses, well, he's certainly working very hard at it, you know. Mm-hmm. He's super passionate. So like he goes so far on his website, because um, he, he writes a blog, which to be honest, um Sorry, Larry, but I don't think the blog has been updated in a while. <laughs> <laughs> the last entry is like 2007 or something. But, um, oh, wow. you know, you're busy writing a book. So. It was the first blog. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. But he even, like, he's very matter-of-fact on his own, like, blog. He's like, look, I'm not going to put out, going to be putting out a lot of content because I'm writing a book, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is what you're going to get. He's just very matter of fact about everything. And then he even goes so far as to say to any Steve Podell fans, that's fine if you want to be a Steve Podell fan, but don't try using a fake name and email address Whoa. because your IP address Whoa. is already there. That's so he scary. goes, yeah, that's, so scary. that's when I was like, <laughs> I looked at it and I'm like, you know, just, just like in bed at night with oh, the light man. out. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, that's really aggressive. <laughs> like, because like, it's like, no. I don't consider myself like a Steve Hodel fan. Yeah. You know, I consider myself like lucky that this person <laughs> that had a horrible family experience wrote it down. Yeah. You know, and was like, oh, this is weird. I'm yeah. Gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to research this because I'm a detective for 30 years. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah I'm, I wasn't like, oh my God, like everything he says has to be true. Like, because I still, at the end of it, you know. Yeah. He even says that it's all circumstantial evidence because yeah. he was a fucking genius. He was smarter than Einstein, you know. He had higher IQ than he did. So it was like he he knew technically how to get away with all this shit, you know. Right. But eventually over time, you know, you're gonna put together all these, oh, this is this is a picture of my dad's watch. This is the same cement bag that was found at the crime scene. Right. This, you know, you're gonna put all these things together over time, you know, but yeah, I, I don't know what point I was trying to make. but No, no, I, I feel <laughs> yeah. you. No, uh, basically, Harnish doesn't hide the fact at all that he goes to great lengths to refute other that's, other yeah, theories that's so that he doesn't believe hold any kind of weight at all. I felt Steve was, like, uh, a little bit different about it. There was definitely, yeah. there was definitely he, he had, like, a little, like, uh, you know, kind of like a... What's the word? Like a like a dig at a few other, you know, yeah. like, you know, other theories. But he never like outright was like, you know, 
don't believe in this or whatever. Yeah. Oh no. Because he yeah. he even said that most of like a lot of his stuff. Because he is the Black Dolly Avenger, and then the updated version three times. It was updated like 2012, 2014. You know, he kept updating because oh, okay. he found new information. Yeah. So even he said that like he found out there was this one website that was claiming that you know the image that was found of the photo, yes, the photo album, the that, two, the two photos that turns out yeah. to be Elizabeth Short, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they analyzed that he steve did and analyzed it and he decided that it was elizabeth short and this was kind of it wasn't i don't think it is but it wasn't it's, it's not, not yeah, yeah after the they update said one wasn't right? yeah no it turns out none of it wasn't oh, her at all oh it was this woman named magana who was actually yeah. performing at uh the same place elizabeth was performing but this was just another woman that steve hodell had like right. an affair with or whatever yeah um but so yeah, like even he, you know, he right. he talked about this website claiming, you know, this isn't Elizabeth Short, and he was like, no, it for sure is, you know. And then at the end of the book, being like, so I was wrong about this, so it actually <laughs> is this woman, and he did like a whole chapter on this oh, Madonna okay. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for joining us for Hollywood's Haunted the podcast. Please subscribe on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. 